Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, Doxedo Hatfield. Where all of us are in our homes then, can I ask us to open up the Bible together to the New Testament book of Romans. So Romans chapter 8, and same as last week, we will be in verse 31. So last week I told you guys about the moment that my family and I, we went to hike up the hill at the Ferry Glen Nature Reserve, and the comedy of errors that that was, but there was actually a day before that that I went on my own to hike up this hill for the first time, and as it happens, I guess, typically, Guy, you think on the other side of the hill that I'm going to try and take, you know, the, the path less traveled, and in the end, I just got pretty much lost. The path less traveled became just plain lost. So that was a blow to my ego, obviously, as a man. Um, I guess my sense of direction is not really what I thought it would be. But that first time on that hill, when I'd actually scaled it and I stood atop of it, um, it was such an amazing moment because as someone who's new to Pretoria, it was almost like a moment of clarity. Suddenly so many things made sense. Oh, that's why this road leads there. And that's how, you know, this shopping center connects to this space. It was such a moment of illumination. Everything made sense. And in the same way, in this season, we are doing a series called Death to life. As we are leading up to the Easter season with Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we are looking at a passage that theologians and Bible scholars and just Christians over centuries have said if there were ever to be a high point in the Bible, a hill, a high place, it would be Romans chapter 8. And the reason is because it gives us such a clear vantage point of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who God is and what he's done in Jesus for us. That's why the reformer Martin Luther called it the clearest gospel of all, the clearest view that we have of the good news of Jesus Christ. And hiking it up, the, the goal behind it's really simple. Paul is trying to lead us away from emotional thinking on the one hand where we are driven by and we're getting almost led by the nose by our emotions as they kind of ebb and flow. On the other hand, he's trying to lead us away from circumstantial thinking where our circumstances are dictating our joy and our passion and trying to lead us away from both of those to this place called gospel thinking. Good news thinking, where we are standing atop of the hill and we are surveying our life in a different way. It's not that we are now suddenly de detached or we are ignoring the things that are happening in our lives. We're denying them. No, it's, we, it's that we've taken a, a higher vantage point called the good news of Jesus. Because every Christian, your life and your joy, your passion, your security in Jesus, it's made up of two things pretty much. On the one hand, there are the circumstances of life. And guess what, friends? All of us are going to face things in this life. Who can deny that in this season? But on the other hand, there's another reality. There's another power at work in your life. And that is called your perception, the truth that you live from. What is the truth that I am using to survey all of these realities and circumstances? That's the thing that we are trying to get at in this series. So for today, let's speak about fears and phobias. Some things we call fears because they are rational. You should be afraid of them. If you go and swim in shark-infested waters, you should be afraid. Other things are phobias. 
We fear them, but it's an irrational fear. We shouldn't be fearing these things. Being afraid of moths is not a rational fear, friends. Let's be honest. So let me give you a couple of examples of just really strange phobias that people had. The first is called xanthophobia. It's the fear of the color yellow. And so people struggling with this, this issue, xanthophobia, they are afraid of the sun, of daffodils, of yellow paint, and its most aggressive form, even the word yellow will set them off. It's just crazy. Um, some people suffer from something called begonophobia. It's the fear of beards. So all of you hipsters out there, you're just striking fear into the hearts of people. And this one is just crazy. It's, it's hippopotamus monstrosa. Yeah, I can't even pronounce that word. You would have guessed it. It's the fear of big words. Someone was being really cruel when they made up that phrase. And then finally, this is my favorite one. It's paperphobia. It's fear of the Pope. Because, of course, what else can be as terrifying as seeing an old man in his 70s or close to 80s coming on the horizon closer to you? And you're like, no, not the Pope. That's the one thing that just, you know, terrifies me. Some things are genuinely just ridiculous. But other things we are afraid of, that strikes fear into our hearts, we should be afraid of them. Some things truly terrify us. I'll never forget one Friday evening I drove home from work and I was on the highway, busy highway, and suddenly a drunk man stepped into the highway, slammed on my brakes to try and avoid him. But he went right into my car, he flipped onto my screen, cracked it, and he was onto the road. It was such a horrific moment. I'll never forget sitting in my car for a couple of seconds, just white-knuckling my, my steering wheel, not knowing what to do. I was filled with fear at that moment. You see, when we come to the second question in our series in Romans 8, Paul is trying to combat fear. Fear that Christians have that God is going to disown them, kick them out. He's going to leave them by the wayside, disinherit them. He's going to reject you. It's a fear that many Christians live with. I have not done enough. I am not enough. My performance, my track record is going to make God actually cast me out. And Paul says the way that we combat that, the sting of accusation, is with the truth of the gospel. So let's read together as we do every week, Romans 8 verse 31. Paul says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he's been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You just want to say amen at the end of reading 
that passage, it's so powerful. What it does in us, there's no other passage, I think, in the Bible that so stirs us, strengthens us, encourages us. And we've been saying that in the series, we want to take verse uh, 37 and 38 as almost the anchor verse uh, passage in the greater text. Because in it, Paul says that we are more than conquerors. How? It says, through him who loved us. It's not that one day we suddenly decided in our brokenness and sin and death, we are going to start loving Christ and being committed to him and living for him. No, it says that God loved us first in Christ. And from that, then Paul says, I am persuaded, I am convinced that nothing in all creation and beyond can separate me from the love of God. And I think it's so important to grasp as we speak about this, that this word, this persuaded, convinced, maybe in your translation, this is not something that's settled one day. Maybe your perception is that Christians are these perfect people who one day, they just flip the switch and then they are perfectly persuaded. They are convinced of the love of God. I don't think that's how it works. Paul says, persuasion is something that happens in time. Conviction, being convinced, is something that happens day in, day out, decade in, decade out in your faith. So take heart if there are moments in your life like me that you suddenly find yourself lacking faith, that you're struggling, that you stumble, that you sin, that you don't feel the part. Paul says you're on the journey together. If Christ is in your heart, if you have submitted your life to Christ through faith and trust, It means that you have joined the race, the journey of every day becoming more and more persuaded, convinced of the love of God. We are taking up more and more the high top view of what God has done for us. And once that happens, the more I lean into that, I realize that the reality of opposition or the sting of accusation as we speak about today or the feelings of condemnation that come into my life, or even that sense sometimes that I have of separation from God, none of those things can match the truth of what Jesus has done for us. No, the Easter time is not a time that we focus on our performance, the things that we can do, the things that we bring to the table. No, it's the life, death, and resurrection. It's the performance. It's the perfect death. It's the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, not what we can do, but what He has done. And so last week we said that when the reality of opposition comes, we can know that God has already proven His life for us in Christ. And so today, let's read together the second question that Paul asks. He says in verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who? Because he says, God is the one who justifies. So today, we're saying that if the sting of accusation comes, we can know that God has already spoken the truth over us in Christ. He has already spoken his truth over us in Christ. Accusation cannot stand when God's truth is spoken. But where does this accusation come from? Where do the accusations come from that tell us that you're not enough, that you're not a good Christian, that you are not the person you think you are? You're not actually a child of God. Your track record sucks. Look at all the mistakes you're making. Look at what a terrible witness you are to Christ. Where do these things come from? Well, the Bible says 
actually from a whole bunch of different places, from a whole bunch of sources and in many different ways. And, and one of them is from other people. Very often we find that as we maybe struggle, when we make mistakes, people call us out on it and they say, how can you say that you're a Christian? Look at the way you're living. Look at the things you're saying and doing. Jesus had a lot of this. In Mark chapter 15, it says, the chief priests accused him of many things. Jesus knew what it felt like, whether you are acting in the right way or the wrong way, to have people level accusations at you. But secondly, it can also come from our own hearts, from our conscience. From the inside, we can actually accuse ourselves and saying, how, you in the mirror, how can you call yourself a Christian? Look at the thoughts that you're having. Look at the things that you are doing. How can you dare to stand up in church and raise your hands when I know what I know? This is what is taking place in Romans chapter 2, where it speaks of our consciences actually bringing accusation to us. But I think the, the number one place where accusation comes from, the Bible says, is from the enemy. In fact, it's one of his names. I mean, if your very name, one of the names for the devil is the accuser, then you know that it's kind of your job. It's your MO to lay accusation against the people of God. So Revelation chapter 12, in this incredible book where John is trying his best through all this, this symbolic language to tell us something about the end of all things, he writes in chapter 12 and he says there should be a moment of celebration. With a loud voice we can celebrate. Why? Because salvation has come, and it's for this reason, he says, the accuser of our brothers, speaking about the enemy, who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. Isn't that beautiful? He says, the enemy who accuses us day and night is finally defeated. See, if we don't take note of the way the enemy works, if he cannot rob us of the work that God has done in us, if he cannot snatch us from the hand of God, what he can do is he can try his very best day and day to accuse you of your identity, of your track record, he can try and, and make you move down from the mountain and live from a lower place of revelation. But if we understand that, if we take note of what he is doing, we can conquer it with truth. So this is what 2 Corinthians 2.11 says. It says, we will not be taken advantage of by Satan. Why? Because we are not ignorant of his schemes. If we know what the enemy is doing, truth will come and will defeat the accusations. So let's dig into the scripture and see what that looks like. Why can we be so convinced? Can we be persuaded of the fact that God has, has already spoken his truth over us? And Paul uses two very strong pictures here to inspire, to challenge our thinking. And the first is adoption. Paul says that we have been adopted by God. Read with me in verse 33. It says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Against God's elect. Maybe your translation says something like, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? God has chosen us. He's elected us. He has adopted us. That's such strong language. That's such an encouragement for us. You know, we've got friends back in Bloom and... Uh, We've known them for a very long time, and they, 
came to a place in life where they realized that they would not be able to have kids of their own. This very difficult season. And finally, they were able to adopt. And I'll never forget just standing um, and just speaking with the husband over a bri and, and just asking about this new little life that had come into theirs. And him just tearing up. He couldn't help it. He, he literally just gushed about the fact that they so deeply loved this young little girl. Can you imagine that a couple like that, maybe in a week's time, just, you know, frustration or boredom or, or something happens, you know, their emotions has changed, and then they just cast out this child. It wouldn't happen. There's such a deep connection in this thing called adoption. And yet, that is but a microcosm of the truth that God, who is perfect, who never changes his mind about something like this, who is eternally faithful to his promises, he says, I have adopted you. I've chosen you. I've brought you into my family. And he didn't do this just through red tape or some difficult administrative processes like we have to know. He went all the way in. The whole nine yards, God literally paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no higher cost that can be leveled. And that's what God says, to come and adopt you, to bring you into my family. I've literally paid with the life of my son. That's huge. God has adopted us. And when the accusations come that you are subpar, you are substandard in your, in your performance as a Christian, you're not making the cut, you are not who you think you are, I have to hear the fact that God is the one who makes that call. God is the one who can say, no, I choose, I speak your worth because I have adopted you. I love this illustration, the, the Boston College Center of Wealth and Philanthropy. A couple of years ago, they had a study to show that in the next season, between 2007 and 2061, the greatest transfer of wealth between one generation to a next generation is about to take place. 61 trillion US dollars. That's three times the GDP of America that's about to be transferred from one generation to the next. Nothing like this has ever taken place at such a scale. And so there was this lady called Brooke Harrington. She's a sociologist at the Copenhagen Business School. And she wanted to understand the intricacies of what was going on here about this, this, this wealth transfer. So she investigated this world of the ultra-wealthy. And in that sense, you have to own at least 30 million US dollars in investable assets to qualify for this, this very elite group. And she went into the world of, of wealth management. And one of the most incredible things that she saw was that most of these ultra-wealthy individuals, the greater majority of them, were going to wealth managers, not to make sure that their wealth would be transferred over to their children, but to protect their wealth from their children. They wanted to make sure that their kids don't actually become the heirs of their wealth. Why? Because they saw them as washouts, as unworthy, as addicts, as, as lazy bums. They didn't want them to be the inheritors of their wealth. Can you imagine that? The greatest transfer of wealth in the history of mankind. And these parents don't want their kids to inherit it. Now contrast that with Galatians 4 verse 4 that says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, God has made you an heir, an inheritor. Ladies, you have to, as men have to wrestle with the fact that the Bible, one of the pictures it uses for our salvation is that we are the bride of Christ. You have to wrestle with the fact that the Bible says that you are a son of God. And that's because in the Middle Eastern context, the eldest son was the inheritor of everything the father had. And here God makes it so plain. He says, if you are brought into my kingdom through faith, when I adopt you, you become my son. You are the inheritor of every good thing that I have. At the end of your life, you will look back and you will say with confidence that God did not withhold a single thing from you that would add to your, to your godliness and your joy. And he would not add a single thing to your life that would rob you of that godliness and joy. He's a good father who says, you are the full inheritor of everything that I have. In fact, there's this Roman historian called William Ramsey, and he says that if you look at the law code of the time that Jesus lived in, the Roman law code, if you had a natural child, a, a boy or a girl, in certain circumstances, if pushed enough, you could actually disown that child. You could chase them away and say, you're no longer legally my child. But in these law codes, if you had, if you had adopted a child, under absolutely no circumstances ever were you allowed to disown that child. And so what does Paul do when he's trying to explain under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what has happened to us in Jesus Christ? He says, we have been adopted by God. No one can change that. No one can challenge that. When the accusations come, it's when we rise to the truth that we know God has adopted us. He's chosen us. I once went to community group many years ago, and I wanted to stop at Pick and Pay, not being fancy, not going to Woolies, just Pick and Pay. And so I wanted to get some muffins, and I get to the bakery, and I just see this incredible display of muffins. And I tell the lady, I'm going to take them. And she says, no, so you can't. And I'm like, taken back. I'm like, why not? And she says, well, these are not for sale. These are display-only muffins. I thought to myself, who does that? Like, display-only muffins. I said, I'm sorry, you are misunderstanding. I am going to take them and pay for them. They are going to be mine. So this epic struggle kind of erupted. Can I tell you, there is no epic struggle going on in the heart of God. He has adopted us fully in Christ, and nothing is going to change that. We are his. But the second picture that Paul uses, not just adoption, it's the strong picture of the courtroom. The courtroom, it's judicial language. It's legal language. He says in verse 33, read with me in your Bible, it says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Why? Because God is the one who justifies. God is the one who justifies, who says, you are now in the courts of heaven, as it were, legally free, guilt-free, sin-free. You are my child. You are chosen, redeemed, washed clean. That's a pronouncement that God makes over every single Christian. And Paul says, who is going to challenge that? I remember Shane, I, we were so captivated many years ago by the series on Netflix called Making a Murderer. Because in the first part of the series, there's this man and he had gone to jail already for 18 years for supposedly a murder that he had committed. And then after 18 years of life, 
new evidence emerged, and he was set free. Can you imagine that? New evidence after spending almost a third or a fourth of your life in jail, and new evidence frees you. It's amazing. But I think very often Christians live with the opposite fear. We think God has chosen me, and in Jesus I'm free, but then tomorrow, next week, when I do something stupid, when I don't live up to my own standards or God's then God is going to have new evidence and he's going to cast me out. He's going to disown me. He's going to say, you're a bum, you're a nothing. We live with that fear. But in this moment, Paul comes and he says, no, those are, those are circumstances. Those are emotions. They have to be met by the truth of the fact that God is the one who justifies. He is the final say over us. And I love what J.I. Packer says about this. He says, nobody can alter God's decision over his head. There is only one judge, and no one can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. For God justified you with, so to speak, his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake, and the verdict which he passed then was and is final. There is not a single entity or power or person or circumstance in the universe that can challenge the word of God spoken over us in Jesus. Almost think of our parliament sometimes when people stand up in defiance and say, you know, I've got a point of order. And every now and then sanity will prevail and the speaker will just say, I'm sorry, you are not recognized. In this moment, when the accusations are leveled at my heart from the enemy, from my own heart, from other individuals, I have to hear, you are not recognized because the truth of God is the only truth that will remain. I'm going to finish off, and I'm just thinking of a moment in my life where that fear of, of abandonment struck into my soul. I was, I was a young boy, maybe nine or ten years old, and we were on an athletics tour in the Western Cape, and my parents blessed me. They phoned me and said, listen, we have bought you a plane ticket home. And I was ecstatic. I'd never been on a plane before. This is so exciting. So the coach drops me off at the airport, and then they assign me to this lady. And I get this little, you know, fatty pack that I have to wear with this little slip in it that says, this guy has no idea where he's going, so make sure that he gets to where he must be and this very friendly lady, she takes me through the airport, shows me the things that I need to know, and then she drops me off at this waiting room, and she says, just wait here. I promise I will come and fetch you. And I'm so excited. I mean, I'm, I'm just enjoying myself. I'm eating the, the free snacks, and you know, every now and then I see some people getting up, and they're leaving, and I'm thinking, well, I guess that's fine. She said she's going to come and fetch me. And more and more people leave. Eventually, I'm the only one there, and so this emotion starts erupting in my heart. But she said she was going to come and fetch me, and eventually I venture out of this room because it's so late, and I can sense something's wrong. And as I'm walking around aimlessly, as I'm running around eventually in this airport, this other person asks me, where must I be? And they take me to the gate. We're literally running across the tarmac. I'm so late, and I get into the plane. And as my heart is beating so fast as a young person, the thought that's constantly in my mind is she has abandoned me. She promised. And she's abandoned me. Friends, when the accusations of our failure or the fact that we can't always even own up to our own standards, when those things come, we can know for a fact that God will never abandon us. No, in that moment we can say with Paul, no, 
as accusations come. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen is what we have to say there. And so when the reality of opposition is there, when the sting of those accusations come, when the feelings of condemnation are there, or even when the sense of separation hits our heart, we can know nothing can change what God has done in Jesus Christ. When I put my faith in Him, it's not what I can do, it's what He has done in the Easter season. We know that it's, it's Jesus and His performance and His life and His death and His resurrection for us. It's death to life forever in Christ. So let's pray together. Jesus, this morning, I pray for every heart that is being accused. It's feeling low. That feels that they're not making the cut or the standard. They feel deficient. God, I pray that the truth of your word would enter into their heart. May you raise us up to live from the mountaintop of truth that you have spoken the final word over us and we can hold on to you no matter what. Thank you, Jesus, that it's about your finished work and not what we can do. I pray that over every heart in Dr. Hetfield and I pray that in this season that we would not just know this but live from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.